Welcome to another episode of What Happens Next. I'm Dr. Susan Carland, and today we're looking at what's happening to change the culture of elite sport. Eric Dennison from the Monash School of Social Sciences explains the power of language and how it can help reshape the culture of sport that starts from a young age. We'll also talk to diversity consultant and broadcaster Rana Hussain about her work helping a range of organisations, including sports clubs, be more inclusive for players and fans. Rana, a passionate sports fan and part of the popular Outer Sanctum podcast crew, says we still have a long way to go. Hi, my name is Eric Dennison. I'm from the School of Social Sciences at Monash University, and I study ways to stop homophobic and sexist behaviour in sport, but uh, really in any setting. Eric Dennison, welcome. Thank you. It is so good to have you here, and I'm really interested to hear about your research because you've done some pretty groundbreaking research on homophobia and sexism in sport. What did you do and what did you find? We've been really interested in looking at the motivations for these behaviours, particularly homophobic and sexist language in sport. Um, I think there's been a lot of research. We just finished a review. There's about 3,000 papers on the problems in sport. We have studied this more than any other social issue Mm. in sports you can think of. Um, What we don't have is any solutions. And in order to develop solutions, we need to understand what's going on under the hood, what's making this language continue when we know in society, particularly with young people, um, you know, young males, they have more gay friends, they have more female friends, they at least claim to be more inclusive. And when we measure their actual attitudes using fairly sophisticated and scales that have been developed over a long time, no, they're not lying. Yes. They do have positive attitudes, yet they're continuing to use this homophobic and sexist banter as if it's going out of style. Like mm. it's just, it's its own separate language in sport. It's like, you know, it's like in Australia we have English and in sport we have English and, and homophobic and sexist banter. So what we find is that when we ask these young men, we say, you know, we don't ask them if they use homophobic language, first mm. and foremost, because we did and they said they didn't use this language. And we're like, that doesn't make sense because all the research and literature says they're using this language. So that makes no sense that they're saying they're not. So then all we did was we took out the word homophobic and we said, are you using words like fag and puff? Um, and, you know, I can't really say the sexist words that we gave examples, mm. but you can imagine the mm. C word and others. And, um, and you know, because some people use this language, you could be using it for any reason. And that's where they said, oh, yeah, I use it all the time. In the past two weeks, I've used it, you know, uh, two to three times or three to four times. Um, And then we asked them, have you heard your teammates use this language? So it's about over half of them self-report they used it. About 70% have heard others use this language. Um, But then we asked them, you know, do you use it at home? No, (laughs) they don't use it at home because, you know, mom would be quite upset, I'm sure, if they heard the C word. So do you think it's that they don't see the C word as sexist or they don't see using the word fag as homophobic? Is is there a disconnect in their minds? Totally. And that's what we're really interested in as social scientists because that disconnect is a sign of something pretty serious, I would say. And – They say that they don't view this language as homophobic or sexist unless there's actually a gay person in the room Hmm. or a woman in the room. Mm -hmm. And because there hasn't been women in sport environments until recently, and they still don't see them as 
part of sport. They right. see women as sort of this adjunct thing that's been added recently. Mm. Um, and I suppose they're not generally in the locker room with them, no. so they can feel that they can call each other a bitch if they yeah, want and it's exactly. no problem. And similarly, um, they perceive that there's no gay people. Right. But yeah. of course all the public health research now shows – you know, the CDC, which of course is the gold standard, they say about 15% of young people identify as non-heterosexuals. But if you look at female, it's up to about 22%. So, um, and research back in the 70s found about 35% of American male football players were having gay sex with others at that time. So, so you know, there definitely is gay people around. There's yeah. definitely women yeah. around, yeah. probably in the other room. <laughs> yeah. And we need to get this language, um, literally we need to change this language, get them to stop using it um, because we want gay people and we want yeah. women to feel welcome. Um, but what I was getting at earlier is the fact they don't see this language as homophobic or sexist, I think is an indicator of a pretty serious problem because it means that they've internalized this language and internalized negative talk about women and about gay people as normal, as is, which would mean that they view women and gay people as less than weak because generally this language is used to um, yeah, it's describe an insult. that. It's not a compliment exactly. when we say get lost fag. No. Um, and even that's gay is yeah. meant as a negative. Right. So, and, you know, we now know there's a very large study that was just released out of the EU um, and around 90% of, of LGBT people feel discriminated against even if they just hear that's gay. Yeah. Um, but I guess what's really concerning to us is if these young men are hearing this language from day dot as soon as they start playing sport. So five or six years old, you know, we've um, we've heard of kids sort of like we went as young as uh, 15, but, you know, it's it's starting quite early. So every time someone drops a ball, does something wrong, isn't trying hard enough, they hear a homophobic or a sexist word use, that's creating this impression in their minds that an association between mm -hmm. doing something wrong, being weak, being undesirable, and being a woman and a gay person. What? And you hear this over and over again in sport because they play sport till about 17 or 18. And there's a lot of social learning that goes on in sport, as we know, because it's really good for kids to play sport. Yeah. But we're now seeing this really dark side because – um, you know, I guess we're wondering and we're very curious about whether the complete failure of workplace diversity programs is because they've just got to these young guys way too late. By the time they're 20, they've been, their minds have been programmed. Did you look at women's sports teams? Mm, and yeah. was there much of an instance of homophobic language amongst female sports teams? When a, when a gay girl comes out, and this perception that sports filled with gay girls is totally inaccurate. All the studies we find, it's about 15%, the, total, the exact yeah. population. Um, but when they come out, there's a perception of others that they're stigmatizing their sport. They're reinforcing these sexist stereotypes that if you're a woman and you're, you must be weak, right? And if you, if you want to play sport, then you must be an abnormal woman. Yeah. So therefore, you must be gay. We're looking at this in two ways. The first is obviously a very serious public health problem because if these young people are being targeted with this language, um, they only have to be exposed to have the risk of suicide and self-harm increase by about double. So if they're actually targeted with this, with this abuse, we now know from a number of studies um, by our friends at Yale who've actually looked at suicide records. So then now it's the direct connection and looked at 
have kids who have committed suicide been targeted with this language? And sure enough, it's a, uh, gay kids that are about uh, in about half the cases, mm-hmm. they've been targeted. That's a factor. Um, and I could be wrong on that, but I, it was about it was about half or about two thirds, or sorry, uh, um, one third. Now, the second thing that we're really concerned about is um, obviously these wider social um, um, issues that you know we need to find effective solutions to workplace problems. We are not seeing change. We are seeing um, most of the programs that the the organizations adopt although well-meaning, are completely ineffective. You know, education doesn't change these problems. Education doesn't change these no. problems. What what changes these problems then? Yeah, we've known that for a long time. Right. We've known sitting a bunch of people in a room and telling them about diversity and yeah. that they need to be diverse and inclusive and that racism is bad and homophobia is bad. Yeah. It speaks to what I just said about these young men who we'd give them the surveys and said, have you used homophobic language? And they're like, No. Then we said, have you used words like fag? And they're like, oh, yeah, totally. So you set a group of people in a room and educate them about these things, and they're sitting there with their arms crossed thinking, yeah. I'm not that person. Yeah. I'm not racist. I'm not sexist. I'm not homophobic. I don't see myself in this. I've never done something like that. Um, and that's fair enough. People are, have need to have good self-esteem. Mm. You know, No one wants to admit that they're a racist. Bigot. Yeah. And they're not in most cases. They're usually just conforming to social norms. Yes. And so that's why we need to change these norms. And sport is sort of the starting place. Um, but, you know, I think if, if you know, I'm, I'm privileged, you know, I'm a white male, um, but I look at um, my female colleagues in meetings and I'm so conscious of the fact that I know that I've been programmed the same. And, you know, and you think about it in, in, in a workplace setting that, no wonder there's so many challenges with with sexism in the workplace because if you've grown up just thinking women are less than, even if you don't think that consciously, you've just heard it over and over and over again by people you respect, how are you going to unravel that? What can we start to do to make to make changes in this area? Well, I think there's three things that seem to work really well. Um, the one is... Uh, we're seeing across multiple different sectors, workplaces, um, schools, and we're, we're starting to do research in sport looking at this, is, is essentially allies and champions. Um, but in a simple way, it's getting people to stop being bystanders. So we know that most young men actually want the homophobic and sexist language to stop, which is totally bizarre. So the same ones that are using these slurs actually want it to stop. And um, they don't realize everyone else feels the same way. And they're not going to have the courage, as we know from heaps of research, when you're in a group setting, people never stand up and say, hey, don't do that, because they're worried that they're going to be the target of whatever it is that's being done. Um, But what's good in sport is we have very clear leaders. We have captains and vice captains whose literal job description, like, is to manage the team environment and manage the behavior in the team. And so literally their job is to get people to stop using this language with a simple you know, as a group decide, hey, we're not going to use this language. Great. Hey, Johnny, stop using that language. We don't use that here. Oh, yeah, right. Sorry, man. Mm. Um, the other peak, big thing is um, is task forces. Um, we know that one-size-fits-all fit all approaches do not work, and that's why diversity programs fail is because they try and do racism and sexism and homophobia and um, ableism all in the same workshop. <laughs> yeah. And you're like, how is that – we know that there's different drivers of these behaviors, 
no one size fit all, fits all. We need task forces who are supported and it becomes core business. You're responsible for women. You're mm-hmm. responsible for LGBT. And LGBT needs to be, you also need to separate sexuality and gender identity. They're confounded. Mm. Right. Well, just the very the time. The conflation of putting yeah. LGBTIQ all together mm-hmm. to reinforces to people that this is the same problem yeah. or same issue. And then the third thing that we know works is actual dedicated attention from senior managers and executives. But if the only real way to get them to pay attention is to have financial pressures. So we need levers in place. We need whether it's government levers, like in Victoria, we've seen mandates of boards um, um, uh, or, um, you know, in in the world of sport, we're starting to see sponsors play a bigger role in pressuring sports to fire homophobic players mm-hmm. like Israel Folau and rugby. Um, you know, I don't think rugby would have done that if Qantas hadn't said, mm-hmm. we expect you to deal with this and we don't want our logo on him. We don't want him wearing our logo. Like they couldn't get any clearer than that. There's no future for him in the sport because we're your sponsor. Um, so I think that's where we need sponsors to play a role. Um, and I think it's, you know, the senior executives are probably like a lot of people, they're not sure what to do. And it's, it's not like they wake up every day reading science journals and, you know, behavior science today or whatever, right? So it's our job as scientists to get out there and be talking to them and sharing that and proactively engaging with them. And um, so I think that's where we can probably do a much better job. <laughs> so you did that fascinating research with sports clubs on their language, their use of language. What did you do with it then? Did you just leave the sports clubs to, to it and say, well, try not to use the F word or the C word against people, or did you then go, okay, now we're going to try and correct it? We did the, what you just said, we tried to correct it. So we've, um, we've trialed a fair few different approaches. We started with the one that the sports thought would work. Um, and in their mind, you just educate these people and they'll stop using the language. So educate means go up, have like a couple of PowerPoint slides talking about why it's bad. Everyone sits in the group and goes, okay, yep, yeah, got yeah, exactly. that kind of thing. Exactly. And um, we threw like the kitchen sink of, you know, science at this. So we had, you know, um, a number of faculties and behavior science experts, not just at Monash, but other schools involved in, in crafting it. We engaged the sport leaders, we engaged coaches, we used a very well, uh, well um, validated theory of change. Um, and we used more important, very high profile rebels, which is the professional rugby team, international rugby team here in, in Victoria, to deliver it, mm. you know, so so they'd listen. So they'd listen. You know, mm. it's not often these professional rugby players they see on TV show up and you're, you're, we did 16 to 20-year-olds and say, hey, guys, we're here to talk about homophobia in sport right. and about how it's going to make our sport better. Um, and, you know, they similar to the workplace programs, it made them feel better about gay people. It made them feel better about the language, mm. but they didn't change their behavior. So they still would use homophobic or yeah. sexist language when they get out on the field or whatever? Then kind of ser- through serendipity, we did a study looking at these pride games. These are these rainbow-themed games that are held in sport. Right. And um, so basically what happens is a sports team says we're going to hold a LGBT pride game. They put rainbows up everywhere. The team has a talk about why they're doing it. They often will ra- wear rainbow jumpers or uniforms or rainbow you know, socks or whatever. Mm. Um, and they'll do it as a group. And... And the then, hang on, sorry, I'm going to interrupt you. And then they just go and play a regular footy game. Regular whatever. footy game, yeah. Right, and okay. so the professional teams, as you know, the AFL, like yeah. the Swans, are doing this a fair bit. And we have seen 
and I, you know, I know their hearts in the right place, but we have seen they're, they're completely ineffective. They don't do anything in terms of changing behaviors or culture at the grassroots. And we know that because the NHL has been doing these games for about a decade now, and that's the National Hockey League in North America, and every single club hosts them, like every single one of all of their teams. I think, I don't know how many there are, 27 or something. Uh, and in hockey, homophobic language is slightly worse than rugby. There's no openly gay people. Uh, there's, you know, so it hasn't fixed the problem. Right. Um, so that so that seems to the work when you, for the teams that actually host the games. So I put on the rainbow jumper. Yeah. I played in this game. We've done two studies in multiple sports that have shown they use about half the rate of homophobic as well as sexist language. And you think, well, how could putting on a rainbow jumper change that? Well, going back to the very beginning of our conversation, if this is driven by norms rather than attitudes, if they think everyone else expects them to use this language, if they think this is the language of sport, and then they put on a rainbow jumper and they're allowed to have that conversation where actually no one really likes this language, we should stop, that is a thing that sort of short circuits those norms, um, we suspect. in terms. So of why did it work in the studies that you did but not with the Sydney Swans and not with the hockey Oh, sorry, because it, uh, it works for players but not spectators. Oh, So you have to actually literally okay. play in a game. Right, so, so for the hockey players, does it work for them? Yep. And so for the Sydney Swans players, it works for them? Potentially. We haven't actually done that research. Right. They've never measured whether it changes the players and the Swans. They've only – So the, the yeah. viewers. But we did do um, the VFL, which is below um, AFL, and it did change the language in the VFL players. Do you see a way to have that then ripple out to the people watching? Could um, we – do they need to be in the act? Could we say yeah. if you come to the Pride match, we'd love it if you also wear something rainbow? Do you think that would make a difference? No, because we're social animals, right? Then, mm. So the third thing that we think works is getting the captains to enforce yep. things or the, or the middle managers. Mm. We're ultimately social animals. Most of our behavior is socially driven. It is not an individual sort of exercise. We don't live in a, you know, little individual bubbles. We live in um, society. So it's that interaction piece in the groups that we belong to that we need to shift. It's not the individual person that we need to shift. So we basically need to change the environment. We need to change the social setting. And we need to short circuit this perception around social norms, what's expected behavior, what what people think they need to do or should do in any any, any setting, which is... We generally misperceive these things. Um, we find across multiple studies, so we know that. It just seems bizarre that you know organizations, sport organizations, but also workplaces, aren't actually using that science to shape their diversity programs. Mm. If we know these things aren't attitude driven, and we know people generally, even if you tell them they're homophobic or racist, they're still not going to stop being homophobic or racist. Um, then I don't know why we keep doing the same thing and expecting mm -hmm. a different result. It's it's quite bizarre. Um, so I guess it's about using the science, using the research. And I don't think these problems are intractable. I think they're probably more simple than we thought. Um, and I think that if we put a bit of effort into it, if we particularly focus on the young men um, so they're not learning this locker room talk, which later becomes the boardroom banter. I mean, the same thing. If any, if you're listening to this and you're a woman, 
they're the same thing. <laughs> and I've started to realize that and I've started to try and short circuit that myself when I've heard it and say, guys, you know, I've started bringing the woman in the room in the conversation because you even in boardrooms, you'll find the guys will be talking on one side, mm-hmm. the woman will be talking in the other. And you think this doesn't make sense. Like we're all part of the same team and this is not going to change things. And so even those kinds of things, you know, it's just, you just have to tell people what to do, not educate them about what they should think, but tell them specifically, this is what you need to do. In the next boardroom meeting, instead of having that banter with the guys, go and talk to the female employees, mm-hmm. go and talk to the junior and find out, rather than thinking about your, you know, your cousin in divi- the separate division, how you're going to help your cousin get ahead, look at the foreign student who's just started as, a, as an intern and be really proactive about helping that person. Because if you did that for your cousin, it wouldn't be weird. So why would it be weird if you're helping the, the, um, you know, the intern who's the foreign student who needs that help and is clearly part of the out you know? And so if you don't help them, I think there's a sense that people think everyone else is going to do it or the system's going to do it, which of course we know is not. If I, even me saying that, I'm sure you're thinking, of course the system's not going to do it. So it's up to us as individuals to do it. And, um, and that's where the individual piece comes in. But it's about the individual within the group, mm. not the individual in terms of just the individual, because this isn't an individual. Eric Dennison, this has been really interesting. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thank you. This is wonderful, and I, I'm so appreciative of the opportunity. Hi, I'm Rana Hussein. I'm a diversity and inclusion consultant. I work with the Richmond Football Club and the Do More Project. Rana Hussein, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. Rana, you do a lot of work in improving diversity and inclusion in sport. What got you into that kind of work? Are you a really sporty person? I've always loved sport. I loved watching it, but I never really got into it because I never really felt like it was for me. Mm. Um, but I I loved watching AFL from a young age. And then as I grew up and still like got more more involved in watching it, I realized that I found it really a difficult space to both be a fan and also reconcile in my mind because I saw a lot of sexism and racism play out. And I just desperately wanted this game that I loved to be better and just was endlessly frustrated by it. So I started volunteering actually for the AFL as a multicultural ambassador and more and more just loved what I was doing. And then Adam Goods happened and I felt like, oh, it, it occupied my mind so much that I thought instead of just being on the sidelines and feeling frustrated by this, I need to put my hand up and say, I feel like I can contribute here um, because I just felt like I could see this thing play out, which was a racism that I could see around me. But one of the saddest things for me about the Adam Goods scenario is that that is not the first time. We've seen that kind of thing play out. Sport and AFL in particular seems to be the theatre in which we play out so many of our social issues, particularly around race. How do you see that evolving through your work? Is it changing for the better? I think it is. It's not changing at the pace I would like it to, um, I'll admit, but I think there's certainly an awareness now and an understanding and I feel like as as horrible as what Adam went through was, 
it sort of drew a line in the sand. And like you said, at the time it probably didn't, but the telling of that story came at a time when everybody was kind of willing to listen and hear what he had to say and made it really clear that this is unacceptable. And so I feel like from there onwards, there's definitely been a commitment to do better. But what I see is the individual athletes pushing for that change and the codes, whether it's AFL or NRL, kind of trying to catch up with that movement rather than them kind of leading that. I see individual athletes speaking up and bringing people along with them and everybody else kind of following after. And I would love to see that change where codes take the leadership rather than wait for athletes to speak up. It's really interesting to hear you say that because as an outsider, to me, the AFL seems so much more progressive than some other codes. They seem to be, and in fact, they've received criticism for being a bit too woke and a bit too (laughs) involved in these issues. But you feel they're really dragging their feet. I mean, look, I think, I do think the AFL are doing it better than most are, and they definitely deserve credit for that. I think if you look at, say, Aboriginal communities, if you look at on-field, they make up 11 to 13% of the playing group. Mm. And then if you look at administration, nowhere near that. Mm. Um, and well, and what, you know, what that, impact does that have? Why does that matter? Well, I mean, if you, <laughs> you know, if you can't understand your playing group and what their needs are and what their experiences are like, you know, how are you going to serve them properly? And I think, you know, you see... Aboriginal Australia has a very specific context. They have specific needs and, and an understanding that's shared by other Aboriginal people. And and I think we're underserving our athletes and our game by not having that represented at the top levels. Um, you know, it just makes sense that I think, I think there's an element, you know, we lean so much on Aboriginal culture from a brand point of view mm-hmm. and, a, and a kind of, Good times point of view. But, and also the skill, you know, don't you think? Like you mentioned there's maybe 13% of players are, are Indigenous. Uh, indigenous people are not 13% of Australia. They are really no. overrepresented. They're incredibly skillful in, in the sport. And we we are thrilled by the way Indigenous people play football is, you know, it, it's something else. There's a, there's a magic to it which just excites the crowds. But as you said... We're not really supporting them. No, and and by and large, they're the players that do come from rural communities or come from different pathways, whether it's through the Next Generation Academy or um, from up north. Like it's just there's a whole other kind of set of circumstances that we need to understand when it comes to Aboriginal athletes and. And if we can't do that from an administration point of view, then we, we are understanding them. And like I said, you know, we we, we do leverage off that, that culture and, and their communities for numbers on field, but also from a brand and sponsorship point of view. You know, Dreamtime at the G is mm. such a big game. You have to start to ask the question, when does that become exploitative if we're not, you know, presenting that internally as well as our field. I did not know that there was no Indigenous sort of administrative support. That amazes me that there wouldn't have been 
some sort of creation of that role. Why do you think that's not happening? So there are, so Tanya Hosh is probably the key example. She's um, executive level at the ASL. She's head of social policy and inclusion. Um, She started in 2017. Until then, there wasn't anyone at that level. Um, And then there are Indigenous talent staff who look after Indigenous talent and um, there's Indigenous staff who work at clubs. But they're specifically for Aboriginal communities and for Aboriginal talent pathways. Outside of that, you don't see Aboriginal or culturally diverse staff really Mm. in the AFL. And again, it's sort of a weird thing, like, if, is that your only place in society? Is that your only place in this game to speak to your own community? Outside of that, it's our game. So if there's a tension there and I want that you know, better examined. You mentioned that we see racism, sexism, there's homophobia in sport and there is this focus uh, on, on trying to improve sport in that regard. But as I mentioned, sport is just the theatre that we play out our social issues. These are just social issues in the rest of the community. Do we place something of an unfair burden on the Richmond Football Club, Collingwood Football Club, who are in the end, they're there just to play the game, they're there to win matches. Is it unrealistic or unfair to also expect them to eliminate homophobia and eliminate misogyny? Are we expecting too much? Mm. Oh, that's the question of the day for me. I feel like I think about this twice a day. <laughs> Who's my job? What am I doing? Is this really, you know, the place to have these conversations? And it's certainly the question that gets put to me the most from people that I am trying to do work with. I think for me, the thing that drives me is understanding in Australia, sport is the national language almost. You know, it's how we shape our identity as a country and and so much of who we are and who we think we are is taken from that sporting ideal. And so in that, because of that context, to me, sport is incredibly important. And I wouldn't say that sport should do it, but I reckon sport can do it mm. and has such an impact when they do get it right. When sport gets it right, it brings people together. I mean, you only have to look to the Sydney Olympics. The way we presented to the world in that moment was so unified. I mean, it was, you know, it wasn't perfect and there was, uh, there was stuff going on then too, but we had Kathy Freeman light the torch. You know, we had Aboriginal culture infused into that opening ceremony and we all accepted it and we were proud of it and it was Probably the only time I can really think of as a country we blended like that and and came together, you know, for the sake of our own culture and identity. And I think sport can do that. And Mm. so I think with sport, it underserves us as a nation to not let it be bigger than the sum of its parts. Like I think when athletes do speak speak up when codes do stand up it brings people together and and like you said to your point it happens anyway like if there is racism in society it is going to play out on the sporting field so equally then it can also be a source of good 
What about the impact on individual players? You know, I said, well, is it too much to ask a club to deal with it? But how do individual players cope with that weight on their shoulders as well as trying to be the most successful sports people they can be? Then asking mm. them also to be almost these paragons of virtue. Mm. I think it's so tricky because it's it's two-sided. I think a lot of athletes want to represent their identity fully and be that role model and be that representation so that others can come after them. Mm. I think there's a degree of I want to do that and it feels good to do that, but the reality of doing that is taxing and and I think if we we on the outside of that are not careful and if we keep kind of using their image and their identities for our own kind of causes, they're going to get burnt out. You know, mental health will come up for them, especially in the case of female athletes. They'll turn to other codes where they don't have to do it so hard and so tough and they'll all walk away from elite sport because it is really full on for a lot of them, especially in ASLW they have to hold down a job as well as really mm. represent, you know, women in sport all the time and do the media and um, bless them, they do it without complaining, but it's it's full on. So eventually it doesn't surprise me that a lot of them do turn away from playing AFLW. Um, so I think we do have to be really careful, but I think what we have to do is really listen to what those athletes are saying and take it on as codes and as organisations and lessen the burden on them so they don't feel like they have to really lead with their identity, that they can just be themselves and they're not doing that heavy lifting. Tell us about the things that you've been involved in or that you've just seen happening in, in your time in working in this space that have genuinely made a difference to make sport more inclusive and diverse. Um, I think it's really boring, but it's the stuff that makes me feel really excited. Stuff like action plans and <laughs> frameworks. It just policy. sounds so boring. But yeah, exactly, policy. But that, they're huge steps forward because what, that, what that's really saying is we're going to hold ourselves accountable. We're putting it down on paper. We're not just going to say we're doing these things. We're actually going to do it and take it to the board and be held accountable. So that stuff makes me feel really excited because it means them clubs feel uh, like they, they really have to do this work. And not only that, they're becoming competitive with each other about doing this work. So mm. it, people are starting to see that it's part of the business. And I, I feel, while some, there's a part of me that cringes at that, that's also really exciting because it means that it's becoming baked into what sporting clubs are doing now. I would love to see sports media do a bit more of the heavy lifting mm, around this stuff mm. too. I was I thinking think about commentators in particular. Yes. It's one of the places where we really lag. So the codes might be doing a power of work and clubs do heaps of work around community and inclusion, but yet we still come up against this kind of brick wall when it comes to representation through the media and, mm. and the way we speak about um, diverse athletes as well, the way we commentate on women's games. Um, so there's a lot of work to be done there. And and even, you know, we know that sports media have a huge role to play when it comes to violence against women um, and reporting on women's sport and how we kind of balance out those, those gender norms and 
and break down some of those stereotypes. So it is actually some really tangible stuff that can come out of doing this work. Um, and I just hope that they, yeah, run with that. Rana Hussain, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. It's been great to hear that it's not all doom and gloom in the sporting arena with so much great work underway to help make sport more inclusive and supportive for all of us. We'll be back next time with our final episode on this topic as all our experts offer up their practical advice on what we all can do, that means you and me, to help change it.